Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler. On this episode of Floods of Justice, we're continuing the conversation on the critical race theory. Don't go anywhere, we've got a special guest. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5, and I want to read verse 24. Where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev. He is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode. What are we, one one away? We're a couple away from our 50th episode here, right? We're, I think so. I haven't counted in a while, but we should be we should well, be close. Three more, yeah. So stay tuned for the big fifty, <laughs> the big five zero celebration coming up. How are you, Pastor Kevin? I'm doing good. Good, good, good. We kind of got a fall day outside. About time, right? Yeah, eighty four yeah. degrees last week in yeah. October. Yeah, and- start is starting to drop. Uh, we're a week away from uh, the elections and. And oh yeah, that uh, is going on, isn't that, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't cool. hear you know, one of the cool things. <clears throat> one of the cool things about voting early, which I did, is kind of like once you vote, it's like this stuff just doesn't bother you anymore. It's like I voted, I've done yeah. all I can do now. Just, just let it, let it go. <laughs> I know, I know. You just watch your bowling ball roll down there, going. I don't know if it's going to hit any pins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just voted, let's just see. I've had I've been on a bad luck, like from the local level all the way up here lately. It's been a long time since I've had anybody I voted for actually win. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, you know, if you're running, if you ever want to run for something, um, if you don't want to win, let me know and I'll vote for you because that seems to be the way it works out. Well, I hope you voted for Kanye or Trump then. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, anyways. Well, we are, as we said, we are continuing the discussion on uh, critical race theory. Part one was, uh, was the last episode. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I kind of lay out some of the foundations of the concepts there. So download that episode and listen. But today... We're really excited to be bringing in a guest. Yeah, we have a special guest. I'm really, really excited about having uh, Dr. David Dark with us today. Uh, David and I actually met through my younger brother, um, and uh, uh, we've been involved in a few things at Riverbend and, and even have seen each other at a couple of protests uh, from time to time. And uh, I told David his, his responsibility today is to clean up my mess la- from the last episode <laughs> right. of the Critical Race Theory. David is a... A prolific writer. He teaches in the religion department at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He was not at the debate um, recently at Belmont. um, It's true. (laughs) I was blocks away. I walked the perimeter just to check it out. Nice. Wish that I could access my office, but no, I was not from your own office. It's true. I didn't even have access to the mute button. Uh, Yeah. Which we don't have the mute button working today. So, okay, so be uh, it. Yeah, but uh, he, he's a scholar and uh, just looking forward to uh, uh, what he has to add to this. And, and uh, we talked briefly, and he can, he can jump in on here, tell us who he is, but also jump in on here that it's a little odd that we're talking about critical race theory and we got three white guys in a room. Mm. Um, but, uh, but that may not be a bad thing uh, because uh, 
it, we're the ones who have to work this out. Um, it's true. And, uh, and so, yeah, just talk about that a little bit. What, if you can remember what you said before we went on yeah. air about that. <clears throat> yeah, I, will, I am very active on Twitter, and I have noticed on Twitter when um, critical race theory has come up, and I've noticed some people on Twitter tagging um, people. Go ahead, of, now, go ahead and give us your Twitter so people oh, can follow Oh, David you. Dark. That's what it is. All right. And it, <clears throat> I, do, I do view Twitter as a kind of public, public bulletin board and an always available notepad for myself. So I... I don't have as many bankruptcies, but I do have more tweets than Donald Trump, oh, I like wow. to say. Yes. Um, if, if I read um, a quote or if I, if I come across something that I want to remember, I will often tweet it, knowing that it will be available via the Twitter search engine for me so long as the Internet exists and my account hasn't been suspended or destroyed. Um, but what I was going to say, I've talked an awful lot about critical race theory, and linked to a number of articles on Twitter. And sometimes folks who are talking to me will try to tag um, a black uh, person of color and get them to weigh in. And often those folks have said, listen, um, white people, this isn't something that I need to be a part of. You need to work this out on your own time. Mm. All that to say, it's it's not necessarily completely inappropriate for us to way into these waters yeah. is three white dudes. <laughs> now, so what's your, been your experience with Twitter? The Facebook, I find there is, in my opinion, so little depth to any of these discussions. Mm. Yeah. You've had prolific amounts of tweets. So conversations that you've had on Twitter, have you, have you found them uh, intriguing, interesting, productive? You know, you choose your word. I but. believe I have. Um, it has something to do with my personality and my way of, um, conducting my own voice on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I sometimes surprise folks if they come at me in what is perhaps intended as an attack. I will do a little asterisk, nods, asterisk, like a kind of stage cue, mm -hmm. and I will probably have something that I agree with in their attack. And that, that's a, it's not just a tactic or a... Um, a strategy, it is born of my natural desire to just keep the conversation going. I, I go on, when I tweet something, I desperately hope that someone will disagree with me or ask me a question. And that probably comes from most of my adult <clears throat> life has been spent in the classroom. And even the most um, hostile uh, outburst from a student is something that I've learned to try to... Um, wrestle with in such a way that it becomes something worthwhile. Yeah. So I have a great time on Twitter and I, um, and I learn a lot on Twitter. I, I follow people because they're going to show me stories that won't naturally break through my informational echo chamber. And I'm able to talk back to folks. The idea that I can ask Stephen King or Steve Martin a question any hour of the day yeah. um, is lovely to me. doesn't mean they're going to reply, but I do sometimes get a like from folks, and um, that probably comes from years of enjoying writing letters and just interacting with folks. So, But it, it's funny with the word media. People say, you know, the media or social media, and I always say, you mean like paper? Because paper is media, as are postcards. <clears throat> And um, it's just another way of bringing your, your voice, your witness to bear on other 
peoples. So I'm, I, I may repent one day for all of the years <laughs> that I gave to Twitter, but for now it's kind of a writing prompt exercise, and yeah. I, do, I do quite love it, I have to say. Well, that's an interesting take. I mean, I, I have found myself posting articles on Twitter or Facebook for that reason, mm. just so I know I can go back and, and look at it again later. I've got it somewhere where I know where it is. Yes. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, but that's interesting. So follow him. It's at David Dark, uh, D-A-V-I-D-D-A-R-K. Yes. Um, and uh, he, he tweets a lot. So, I do. Uh, and it's always. Uh, and I retweet a always, lot. Always, yeah. It's always good stuff. Uh, from that, but just tell us a little bit about yourself um, before we really move into um, yes, uh, I critical think, race theory. If I may, I think talking about myself will naturally go into some okay. of what we're talking about. One of my sayings, which I picked up from someone else, is um, where we stand determines what we see. Where we come from determines what we see. And that's another way of saying that everyone has a context to pretend that I don't have a context or a background of some sort is to kind of, and it's a power move, but it's to try to, it's to force on others the myth of critical detachment as if I am divorced from, say, politics or religion or in the above the fray move. To me, to, st- to say I try to stay out of politics is kind of like saying I try to not be a body in a body. Um, <laughs> We're, we're there, we're partaking, we're, we're getting, we're spending, we're weighing in. Um, so part of where I come from is I am a lifelong Nashvilleian. And um, it happens, and it still feels kind of strange to put it this way, but it, it is correct to say that I attended a segregationist academy, which I loved, by the way and which um, I still love to a degree. But when I started there in 1976, um, Franklin Road Academy, which still exists, was founded, as were a number of private schools in the area, to provide white families with means a way to avoid public school integration. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can say that of the school, while also shouting out to the school, I loved it there. I, I'm, I guess I'm kind of glad to be an alum of that place. But part of the origins of Franklin Road Academy is, is a segregationist academy. Certainly not advertised that way then or now, but that was the situation. So one reason I may never be able to run for public office is if you were to look through the annuals, um, the yearbook, you would perhaps find a picture of me with a Confederate flag. If you looked at my homecoming dance pictures, um, there I am standing in front of a Confederate flag. And I, believe me, I thought nothing of it at the time. I, I saw nothing harmful in this. But a few years after the photograph was taken, I saw Mississippi Burning with Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. Not long after that, I saw Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which totally turned my head around, and I was made to think through my own background a little more differently. A little more differently. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, had to, I had to think more critically about my own situatedness. Um, I will say as well that around that time, um, I went to MTSU. I majored in English and philosophy, 
And on my way to MTSU, I would listen to a man that perhaps some of your viewers have heard of called Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> is, that a, is that a known figure? <laughs> vaguely. I've heard of him vaguely. Okay. So when I would take sociology classes or philosophy classes as someone who is perhaps more what I thought of as traditional or conservative, um, sometimes when the existence of God, for instance, was not a given, in those classes, I could feel a little marginalized, like maybe they didn't get me. And if I wanted to, I could feel a little persecuted. But then I could listen to Rush Limbaugh, and he would explain that they were all liberals or secular humanists or whatever, and that I never, that the, the deck was stacked against me already. So there was a season in which I probably deferred to Rush Limbaugh on most things. But I also listened to Public Enemy and you too, and Suzanne Vega, and I read Dostoevsky. So I would meet people, and they would see me with an REM shirt on or something, and if Rush Limbaugh came up, they might wince a little, but they knew there was more to me than that, that that wasn't all I was. So in time, um, those who saw more in me than this Rush Limbaugh listener kind of weaned me off, <laughs> strange thing to say, but weaned me off the Limbaugh teat, if you like. And um, no, was, I would not like yeah, that. That's, like that's a mental picture. I don't want. You know what I had there for a while? Oh, but but so, so I got weaned off of that. And, um, and it's great. And I have been, I am the recipient of many um, forms of intellectual hospitality. And I like to mention to folk, I mean, because now I'm, I can be seen among what are referred to as the Black Lives Matter protesters. I like to remind people that I was once one who really depended on Rush Limbaugh to know what to think, mm -hmm. but there were people who held a door open for me, and um, it's important to do that, even yeah, now. Yeah, you yeah. know what I hear, and I'm with you. It seems like your story and my story parallel, except except for Public Enemy. I, okay. I, I kind of <laughs> diverted there. You're a striker. Yeah, striper. You <laughs> yes, know, yes. Striper, ACDC, that mm -hmm. kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of a thing. But what I hear, and I see this a lot in my own experience, is that um, you, in your quote-unquote white conservative days, yes. received a lot of grace. Yes, I did. That, just to be honest, uh, conservatives have a hard time showing that grace to other people. It's true. It's true. You know, and that grace that you received helped open up the door. Yeah, I'll mention to too. Thinking differently. Um, when I finished at MTSU, I worked for the YMCA in Northern Ireland, and part of my job there was to help Catholic kids and Protestant kids. These are sectarian definitions. Yeah. Figure out how to overcome their own sectarian strife, and part of what we would do with Catholic and Protestant youth is have each of them draw a map of that. We would bring them together and go canoeing and do rock climbing and stuff, but they would make maps of their town. And the Protestant kids had a whole part of town that they knew very well. And the Catholic kids had another side of town and they could put their maps together and get a bigger picture of Newcastle or Bound the Hinge or Bangor, or these little towns in Northern Ireland. I did one of Nashville with my friend, a guy named Lee Smithy, who is also good friends with your brother, Jonathan. Um, and we saw that in Nashville, literally on the other side of the tracks interstate, there was Jefferson Street. There was the school that Oprah Winfrey went to. There was Tennessee State University, Fisk, Meharry, 
that was not a part of um, Nashville that I was familiar with. So in a sense, by being in Northern Ireland, I got politicized, if by politicized we mean more conscious of the arrangements that I had ignored, that were kind of invisible to me, that I had been born into. Um, so that's def- And from there I taught high school at Christ Presbyterian Academy for about 10 years, and then I went back to school at Vanderbilt, and um, I now teach at Belmont, but it happens that my degree, my PhD at Vanderbilt, is religion generally, but my actual area, and Noah needs to remember this because it's a mouthful, is histories and critical theories of religion. So critical theory is my jam. <laughs> like I have a, I I have a piece of paper as the think of the Indigo Girl line when they say um, got my paper and I was free. When I got my paper, <laughs> my PhD paper, and I was free, it it did say critical. I think it said critical theory on it. Wow. Um, so that's part of my thing. Well, well, that that leads us in then. Get tell us. Um, you know, you you said you listened to my my attempt last week, mm-hmm. but just kind of. Uh, you know, let's just start the conversation about critical race theories. Just yes. jump in, tell us what it is and, and yes. how it applies to Well, I'm going to say we that what you said last week was, was right on. And, especially, and eventually um, this talk of white fragility, white privilege, um, I know many are triggered by those words, but part of the work is recognizing your own triggering, recognizing the parts of history that one would rather not think about. Um, I'll I'll get to it, but there's a thing called the self-attribution fallacy, which is imagining that whatever is going well for you, say your home, your wealth, your job, you got that um, through all of your own hard work, (laughs) that you are a a self-made person. And I don't think there's any such thing as a self-made person. Um, Everyone was held like a baby by somebody somewhere along the way. And I think part of what we're dealing with, with what is called white fragility, is this suggestion that maybe what I have prided my... And, of course, we all do work. Hopefully we do good work and we push through adversity and all that kind of thing. But the suggestion that my own status might have more to do with luck and brutality, accident of birth, for instance, than it does with my own personal accomplishments. That's, I think that's part of what's getting triggered there. But I, I want to go a little ways back before I um, speak the words critical race theory and note that theory is just thinking. Um, that, that's all theory is. And critical theory is just deep thinking, is just getting a little more granular than we're used to. Um, but I want to go... I want to go back and note that philosophy, out of which theory emerges, means love of wisdom, philosophia. And a philosopher is someone who wants to know, someone who loves wisdom, and how do you figure out who really loves wisdom? Someone who wants to know what's true more than they want to win or silence the opposition or feel good about themselves. So philosophers are, I hope that I'm a philosopher. If anyone ever says, you've always struck me as a genuinely philosophical person, I'll say, thank you, I'm working on that. Similarly, if someone says, you seem like a Christian to me, um, 
fantastic. That, that is what I'm shooting for, but it's not, neither Christian nor philosopher, in my view, work well as unexamined self-descriptions. It's something that works as a compliment, but it, when you try to advertise yourself as a Christian or advertise yourself as a philosopher, that's a little problematic. Um, out of philosophy, um, we have many different schools of thought about what's real, what's true, what's beautiful. And um, around the time of World War II, the words critical theory emerge um, out of the Frankfurt School, which is Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, Hannah Arendt to a degree, um, Walter Benjamin. If, you, if you're at Vanderbilt, they'll say Benjamin <laughs> instead of Benjamin. But these are folks, mostly Jewish, who are trying to figure out how Nazi Germany happened and how so many seemingly thoughtful folks um, could kind of hand their imaginations over um, mm -hmm. to terror. So critical theory, critical theory is all along, like philosophy is all along, but the words critical theory are a little more Frankfurt School, just as the words critical race theory are a little more associated with Kimberly Crenshaw, who um, gave us the word intersectionality, which is a amazing word because with intersectionality mm -hmm. you can say no 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 it wasn't just that this person was black it's this person is a woman and this person is in a deprived economic class so you can't just say race you can't just say gender you, you've got to say a bunch of things intersectionality is a way of naming um injustice can also be a way of naming bigotry evil all of that if and it's also a way of naming privilege. That's right. That's right. So intersectionality is a multisyllabic word that is very triggering to many, but it kind of goes back to that question of philosophy. Do you want to know what's true, or do you only want information that confirms your bias? And to, to be a true philosopher, probably to be a, a Christian or even a morally serious person, is to want to know what you don't want to know. Is, is to try to take in news stories that aren't flattering to you and your kind, whatever that might be. But I also wanted to know, know we're going to have a lot to say in this regard, that um, to me, and you said something like this toward the end, um, Jesus, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Moses, Huldah, Mary, both Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary of Magdala, in my view, they are all critical race theorists. Um, all the prophets are critical race theorists because they are examining and crying out and calling out over what the idolatry of ethnicity um, is doing to them. I like to note, too, that there are no white people in the Bible because whiteness is an idea that has been used to justify um, business as murder. But whiteness is not a natural category. James Baldwin, in an interview, um, black man, James Baldwin, in case listeners don't know, famously said to a white interviewer, you're only white because you think I'm black. And it was a, a really nice moment. Now, that's not to take away from um, black culture as um, a multifaceted culture of, of truth-telling. Um, but, of course, the black and white 
these are constructs. Race, racism is a reality. It is, it names policy failures. It names terror. Racism is real, but race, of course, is a, is a construct. Um, and there's a sense in which I think our entire nation, well, many within our nation were kind of triggered by the election of um, Barack Obama because you see pictures of him with his mother, who is white, or you see pictures of him as a child with the white, um, the grandparents who looked after him. And it, it was very, very, it need not be jarring for most of the country because it names our country. But it was very, very, very triggering um, to many aggrieved individuals who um, were then part of the um, birther movement, which gave birth to Donald Trump as a political figure. The birther movement was not invented by him, but he did ride that bandwagon like a wave of mutilation into the White House. Um, yeah, I've gone on and on. No, no, a couple of things just, just kind of came out. Um, you know, the the idea that that critical theory was really formulated or um, starting to be discussed by... Um, Jewish people in Germany who yeah. were trying to explain the Holocaust. Basically. And how to keep it from happening again. Yeah, and I find that interesting. And again, not to compare, and I don't mean to get myself in trouble, but I've gone back to that time in history to try to, and, and looking at the church in Germany yes. at the time, um, to try to figure out how have, from my perspective, so many God-fearing people just kind of been deceived by some of the politics going on today uh, from that, that allow um, these things, because I can't put my mind around it, but when I study history, it's kind of like the same way, okay? The evangelical church in Germany followed Hitler until it was too late, so you had to have the confessing church come mm-hmm. along and, and eventually Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, from that, and so it's like, well, that makes sense. Here, here you know, because basically what you're doing when you're trying to figure it out, you're basically trying to find meaning in it. Yes. Or else it was just nothing. So what what is the meaning behind this horrible yeah. Event and if you yeah. think about it, in the African American slave tradition, with their spiritual songs um, and all that, they, they're trying to find meaning in this horrible existence. Because if there's no meaning, then it's just mm-hmm. it's just horrible. Yeah. But yeah. if there's meaning, then they're, okay, there's a reason mm-hmm. why this is happening. And so, yeah. in a sense, trying to explain why something happens is an attempt to try to make meaning mm-hmm. out of something that seems meaningless yeah. or something that seems um, arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And then the whole idea of the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, this for me, this was a light bulb moment several years ago uh, when I was challenged um, that, look, <clears throat> to no, for no fault of your own, it's mm-hmm. the way you were brought up. It's your context. You've been reading the Bible from the top down yeah. when you really need to read the Bible from the bottom up, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because the Bible was written by oppressed people yeah. to oppressed people. Yeah. I've, I've tried to say that the Bible... <clears throat> in addition to being the most formidable array of social criticism ever assembled in one volume. Another way of putting that is the Bible, which I do believe is inspired, is also the composition notebook of a millennia-long caravan of asylum seekers. <laughs> that yeah. you, you can say, no, this, part, this is a king talking here, but, but no, all the way through, it is folks marginalized people marginalized people it arrived there i read a story recently about a not i don't know if it would even be called i guess it would be called the migrant camp 
of people trying to survive in the COVID era when they're not being granted entry, but they're just kind of there. Babies are being born, all of that. That those are the circumstances out of which the word of God arose, if we think of the scriptures as the word of God. Um, yeah, and the, and the Bible in that sense, well, there there is, as we noted when we were talking earlier, there are people trying to attack critical race theory. There is an attempt on the part of the ruling party of our government to, I won't, I'm tempted to say outlaw critical race theory, but that might be going a little too far. They at least don't want critical race theory to be publicly funded. And there's the 1619 project that they're trying to punch down at this point. Yeah. Um, in an attempt, there have been those who have said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer a biblical critique of critical race theory, to which I want to say, you know, nobody has the biblical critique <laughs> to think that anyone is in a position to say this is the biblical response to critical race theory is, is very, very arrogant in my yeah. view. Kind of like we do when we're saying, now what Jesus is really saying here, you know, it gets tricky. Um, I like to say that the Bible before the, before the phrase got coined, that the Bible itself is critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And um, that by thinking of it that way, we might be a little less prone to think of the Bible as this text with which we can beat down anything that triggers us. Um, but it's also a way about a way of thinking of critical race theory as the witness, the very thoughtful, um, righteous witness in many cases of folks that, again, our ruling party doesn't want to have the microphone right now. Witness is a word that I like to use because I can speak of the, the witness of the band Radiohead, and I'm not just referring to the music. I'm talking about the way they tour, their interaction with their fans, what they pay, the lighting people, all that kind of stuff. I like to say biblical witness instead of the Bible because the Bible, um, depending on which verse you pull out, you can kind of make it sound like it's endorsing all kinds of things. But the biblical witness on the whole is on the side of justice, mm -hmm. even though there are passages that have been used to justify child abuse and slavery and um, executing people. Um, yeah, just mentioning to speak of the witness of critical race theory and to get into the nitty-gritty of um, what folks who have been thought of or marketed as critical race theorists are saying. That's a much better approach than kind of treating it in a monolithic kind of way because obviously those who um, have written on it, even in an authoritative way, will often disagree with each other. It's a tradition. Um, it's a life-giving tradition that is a gift, especially to the United States of America at this point in time, but it is a gift that one party in particular wants to silence and demonize. Yeah, well, that, well that's, that's really good. So the, <clears throat> when it comes to critical race theory, again, just kind of what we're talking about is, and, and you can't really talk about without, without really talking about the intersectionality, mm -hmm. is that basically in every culture you have the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. Or the uh, the power, the people in power, and the people who are oppressed. There's really no good terminology to use. There's, mm -hmm. there's problems with all that terminology because um, there's overlapping. There, there's yeah. overlapping, and so um, and so the the more categories a person fits that is not part of that dominant culture, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then the more disadvantage 
uh, they are. Yes. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, so that's where the intersection is. And so if you're, um, if you're a, a minority, okay, you're not part of the dominant group. Mm-hmm. In our particular culture, because of our history, if, if that minority means that you're black, mm-hmm. um, it's not to say that brown um, and Asian are not discriminated mm-hmm. against, but because of our history um, or Native American and yeah. indigenous people would be at the, the lowest, mm-hmm. at the lowest point of all of that. So if, if so, if you're um, Native American or you're African American, that puts you at a, a disadvantage mm-hmm. at some level. Doesn't mean that if you you know that that you can't achieve anything because you can, but mm-hmm. but you start off at a lower point, and then if you add, okay, well you're a woman or you're a person with a disability or you're a Muslim <clears throat> or you're an atheist. Um, and so based on your belief, based on your ethnicity, based on your name, do you have a European sounded name or do you have um, a, mm-hmm. a name that's not, not European? The more those things that you have that put you, at, that put you out on the margin outside of the dominant group, then the more disadvantaged you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, this gets associated with Marxism because Marx said it's all about economy. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship to the means of production? That, yeah. That's kind of where you're going to fall. Um, and so that's why it gets accused of being mm-hmm. a Marxist. But then what the critical race theory is saying is, look, intersectionality, all that is really, really important. But in our time, in our culture, in our history in the United States, the primary thing um, that um, you see inequality based on is race. Yeah, yeah. So your gender, your religion, your ethnicity, all those things are important as well, mm-hmm. but it is race. And so, and so it does... Yeah. It is all about race. Mm-hmm. And I want to throw in, too, I don't want to get anyone in trouble by saying the name Marx and saying something positive about <laughs> Marx. But arguably, Marx got his material from Shakespeare and the Hebrew prophets. No, no, you can't say that. <laughs> well, because the vision yeah. of Isaiah, where everybody has their own tree and no one is estranged. I mean, there's, um, it will no longer, I can't quote it chapter and verse, I should have brought it. This yeah. is on tests. This is on exams when I teach the Bible. But um, it will no longer, the one who builds will now be able to live in the kind of thing that they built. The one who picks is going to be able to eat the fruit yeah. that they picked. No one will be estranged yeah. um, or deprived of the work of their hands any longer. So I guess we could call that a kind of proto-Marxism in the Oracle of Isaiah. Um you know, before any of that showed up. So, it, but and you can do the same thing with the early church, who held all things in common, mm-hmm. and um, private property not only wasn't a thing for the early church. If you came at the early church trying to hold on to your property rights, this is really getting into the weeds. But Ananias and Sapphira mm-hmm. in that story, they themselves are struck dead by their own um, acquisitiveness that there's a kind of acquisitiveness that you don't want, well, that you can't um, have and dwell in koinonia, dwell in community properly. Um, I want to note, too, that white supremacy, um, which is also a trigger word, is a way of naming all of that in terms of indigenous cultures and and the raw deal um, that so many have gotten, those who were here before Europeans as well of those who were brought over. Um, and I have become more comfortable, especially in the last four years, um, at, I've become more comfortable with naming white supremacy as a kind of um, card that people play 
in order to advance their own careers in public office and in seeking power over others. That's in the same way that it's probably only the last four years that I've referred to my alma mater, Franklin Hunter Academy, as a segregationist school. I've also noted that my job as a 50-year-old Nashvilleian, the work of trying to become anti-racist is also the work of trying to become less white supremacist in my imagination and in my conception of myself and others. And it need not be the zero-sum game that the split screen on CNN or Fox or whatever makes it. I can say that I have relatives who have passed as well as relatives who are still alive who descriptively are at least somewhat white supremacist. Um, That doesn't mean that they're worthless, but it does mean that they are carrying their own personality, their resources, their voting power um, in a way that that is wicked, that I want to try to talk them out of. So even in a room of three people, you're not going to say you're the least racist person (laughs) in this room. Even in a room of three, I am not going to presume to say something like that. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back and continue the conversation. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of Second and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Welcome back to Floods of Justice. We have been uh, discussing critical race theory here with David Dark. And I'm loving this. This is, we we could do a two hour episode on this. Like I have so many questions, so many questions. Um, One of them just kind of coming off of what we had been discussing is you had talked about this attitude of of the philosopher in, in this pursuit of, of truth. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, there are some people that, that genuinely seek truth and they're willing to peel away those things that aren't that. But what I'm seeing in, in America 2020 is, is a massive pushback of, of truth, of facts. Mm-hmm. That there's just an ig- ignorance of facts. They can state something else. To try, and if they say it enough times, it becomes fact. Yes. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how did we get to this point? Is it, is it something about just modern human beings? Is it America? Is it social media and the division that it's creating? Like, what, what is causing this? What is the cure Okay. Yeah, those, those are great questions. Um, I will note that um, there used to be a space. I feel like I lived, grew up in a space where difference of opinion was an opportunity rather than a catastrophe. That if it's not, I believe this, well, I believe this, and then you're just kind of hitting heads. Opinion, to be able to say that's your opinion, may I share my opinion? <laughs> then now we're, we're learning. And again, back to philosophy, to be a philosopher is to want to have your mind changed. Like you go seeking conversation yeah. and to say, wow, I had never thought of that before is describing gospel. Good news. It's awesome that I was just shown something that I hadn't thought of. I think um, the nature, this isn't to blame anything on the internet exactly. There's enough of that already. But we do have an awful lot coming at us all the time. Maybe this goes back to the question of context. We don't know um, where to put what we're finding out. We also have 
you know, if we think about news, but who decides what's newsworthy, really? And um, if you were to tell me, hey, the, uh, here's where you need to go to vote, that's, that's newsworthy. But um, Senator Ben Sass sometimes thinks about becoming a Democrat. Is that newsworthy? That is something that came out. There was a whole story about it. Yeah. It's like, did he really? Uh, that serves him rather well because he's a Republican. It suggests that maybe he'll, that he's a more, um, that he's less beholden to the party than he is. Um, what, what is news? Um, I think often we let marketers tell us what news is because what's coming at us is news product rather than actual news. And what's coming at us on our phones or our screens can inundate us like a um, technicolor broken fire hydrant of data, you know. So I think we get stupefied. We don't know. We already know more than we know what to do with. And when sometimes when we try to share what we think we know, somebody tells us that we're ill-informed or we're wrong. And so then we get discouraged and we get we get stupefied, which is another way of saying we kind of enter a state of stupidity where we're in a stupor and we're afraid to disagree with people. We're afraid to try again. I think, and we become people who are possessed by deferential fear. And what I mean by that is fear of thinking for myself and saying what I believe because in many contexts we feel so bullied that we don't know what it would be like to be in an atmosphere where we voice an opinion and it gets corrected or challenged and then we change our opinion. Like that's a beautiful book club family type thing, but the space for that in an everything all of the time era seems to be narrowing. Interestingly, the word that is, that is leisure that refers to this kind of reflective space where you can kind of kick back and, and sort through your own contradictions and maybe have some realizations. The word for that is scola, which is school. So school actually names that space of a kind of unhampered feeling of maybe reading a poem or looking at the lyrics to a song or listening to a song and thinking about what does this mean? And I think these days with reviews, with everything coming at us, we often will see a movie and um, we'll kind of defer to what other people say about the movie and then the movie is over for us. We do that with albums, we do it with music, we do it with political figures. This maybe gets into the cancel culture stuff that yeah. there's kind of a fear of saying the wrong thing. And I think, yeah, back to deferential fear, we kind of defer to whoever's strongest or loudest or most likely to offer us some security. I'm going to mention as well that the Cambridge Analytica effort, um, which Steve Bannon was part of, and I think it's got a different name now, um, part of what Cambridge Analytica was doing with political advertisements on Facebook, not only in America, but all around mm -hmm. the world, one of the mottos of Alexander Nix, who helped run it, was it doesn't have to be true, it just has to be believed. Mm. And that is an actual description of the product they were selling. We can get a story out there, and if it discourages people from voting, they may realize that it was untrue after the election, but it's not going to matter. They just have to believe this long enough 
to either not vote or vote for the other person. So going back to Germany, the Reichstag fire, which happened a few, I think, months after Hitler's election, um, they blamed that on all kinds of people. Um, but it was really just one saboteur who set fire to the parliament in Germany. In Minneapolis, a police precinct was burned down or horribly burned. Antifa, Black Lives Matter, I mean, all exactly. those things, even down to our attorney general speaking that way. Mm-hmm. But we found out a couple days ago that the one person, a boogaloo boy, was the one who did it, and now he's being charged. Or Is, go back farther. Yeah. Nero wanted to clear out a section of Rome to um, build his new White House. Yeah. And yeah. the fire got out of control, mm-hmm. burned down most of Rome, and Nero blamed these group of Christians. Yeah. They're the ones who did it, and persecution started. It didn't have to be true. It didn't just have to, had be, to be true. Be it just had to be believed. And, and critical race theory is one way of naming one of many witnesses that are asking us to slow the tape, to recognize that the past is always with us. And it doesn't mean that those of us who are white um, have to feel guilty all the time. But it does mean that we get to be mindful of where our privilege has immunized us to certain realities. My prayer for the long lines on election day, and I'll see folks on social media of my background saying, I did it in under an hour. And it's like, congratulations. But when you say that, you're kind of disinforming people because you're ignoring the fact that miles away in another district, mm-hmm. somebody had to wait four hours. Don't let your exception be offered as the rule. Similar thing has happened. I've I tried to take people on on Twitter over this where they'll say, you know, the media keeps going after Trump supporters for not wearing masks at rallies. Why didn't they say anything about the Black Lives Matter protests? And I say, well, I've been to quite a few of those over the last six months, and there's always masks, there's Mm -hmm. always social distancing. And you're going to want to hear that, because otherwise that little, huh, why won't the media, that just serves the ends of disinformation and essentially slanders people who at risk to their own lives have been confronting law enforcement, um, who often at least in um, May and June, were not wearing masks and resented the suggestion that they needed to. But all that, back to the Cambridge Analytica, back to the philosophy thing, if we want to know, we're going to try to follow the stories that challenge our preconceived notions. And I'm afraid that in our day, um, marketers are eager to um, keep us addicted to um, outlets that just reinforce our prejudices yeah you know back when obama was was president there was a thing going around social media um that uh, and, and if i remember right it may not have actually it was near the end of his presidency but it's going around that he had gotten rid of all the nativity scenes at the white house mm. over christmas on christmas yeah. you know and um someone showed that to me and i went and i showed them no here's the truth oh and showed them the pictures of the nativity so he never did that and their comment was, well, that sounds like something he would do. <laughs> yeah. So even at, and so that's the idea. It doesn't have to be true. It's just got to be believed. And yeah. so somebody spread this untruth. Mm-hmm. 
It, and, and people believed it so much that even when you show them the fact, well, that sounds like something. And they like the heat, do. the feeling of opposition. Yeah. And you are one person. You're a pastor saying, hey, look. And you might have them for a moment, but then <clears> they go home and yeah. Fox News is on. Or, or they, they have the, I've, in my own teaching, I, especially the freshman year, I'll say, I know I have said some things that have upset you. And many of you hear your parents or an uncle or a grandparent saying whatever you imagine they might say if they were in this room. That's interesting and it's natural. But your job is to ask yourself what you think about what I just said. And in developing that opinion, taking it home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Which is going to be tough, but that is the work of philosophy is, okay, I see this. I, you're right. You're right. But it can be very tough because peer pressure is forever um, that we kind of get worn down in the work of remaining culturally literate or remaining receptive to the witness of critical race theory, even in the presence of people who've known, you've known your whole life who are now stumping for... I'll say this, this is Tennessee, so it's okay. But I found it important over the last four years. Um, I'm taught to call no one a fool, to not fall for labels, as in you're just a conservative or you're just a liberal. In addition to being an infinitely valuable bearer of the divine image, Donald Trump is an unrepentant sexual assailant. That has been the case for almost four years now since the Hollywood access thing yeah. happened. So you have that, and you have the, the banking everything on white supremacist terror, and here's an intersectional thing. It might be too much to say that descriptively he is a white supremacist, unrepentant sexual assailant, but that is kind of the job. I know, and I've, I'm in a pretty nice spot in that I'm a faculty member I'm not a country music star or a minister or someone who has to make sure that my sales, I don't, I'm not a Dixie Chicks situation, but because I, I have what I need, I have felt all the more responsible, responsible to say what needs to be said if we're going to be morally serious, candid um, people. I may have a personal story. Um, so when I saw Do the Right Thing at Vanderbilt Surratt Cinema um, when it came out, the cast of Do the Right Thing, not Spike Lee, but Giancarlo Esposito and Spike Lee's sister, whose name I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember, they were there um, talking about the film. And I felt, as a Rush Limbaugh listener at the time, I felt like I was pretty cool going to, I felt kind of progressive going to this event, uh, and the audience was predominantly black. I was one of maybe five white people there. And um, I loved the film. I loved listening to the cast talk about their work. Um, and at one point, Giancarlo Esposito said, we need more sisters and brothers in the film industry. And by that, he meant we need more people of color in the film industry. Yeah. That um, triggered me as a maybe 21-year-old because I felt excluded by that. And I thought about raising my hand and saying, I love what you're doing. Um, thank you for your work on this film. Quick question, am I a brother? And if not, 
why not? And then I was going to sit down. I didn't do it. Yeah. I, mean, I really didn't do it. But I enjoyed telling the story of how I thought about doing it to other white people because it was kind of a show of strength. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a nascent, if I can say this, a Ben Shapiro, Rush Limbaugh type thing forming within me. Yeah. Of course, I only told white people that story <laughs> because I sensed unconsciously perhaps that if I'd said I thought about saying, am I a brother, that my black friend would say, well, are you? That's up to you. You're, you're not, the idea that you're entitled to this communion of thoughtfulness and experience because you're a human being. I, I took exception to the brother-sister thing, and mm-hmm. I kind of, in a rather <clears throat> wicked, insidious way, I, like Gollum or something, I kind of prized my resentment. I revered, I almost sort of nourished it into more a larger creature within me. I think something like that is sometimes at work in our, um, our self-legitimation mechanisms. But part of what critical race theory does is it helps me see that even though LeBron James has more money and fame than I'm ever going to have, he is physically vulnerable as a human being in America in a way that I'm not and may never be. So that's part of that intersectional critical race theory thing that, again, I know when I've written about LeBron James, I've sensed and sometimes gotten a little bit of resistance on um, treating a millionaire like a prophet. Um, but he is a prophet, and, and he's telling a, he is using his celebrity as a currency to create a space of thriving, to create a future um, for people that he'll never know personally. But for some reason, that story and the LeBron James comes to mind in thinking through the um, the tricks we play on ourselves in order to avoid um, a sense of our own complicity sometimes in what we can call systemic evil. I, I tend to think that nobody is evil, but that evil... Um, Evil originates in the desire to eliminate evil or to eliminate a perceived disorder. So when we start trying to control or correct or manage, that's when that kind of kicks in. But I do, going back to Jesus saying, um, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, I do think of it as a kind of madness that settles on people in the same way that nobody's born white supremacist. But it's a horrible idea Um a structure of thinking that that we learn, and it can take a long time to unlearn it. Yeah, it's a life. It's a lifelong of unlearning. I, yes, I don't know if you ever unlearn it. I've been sharing with people really since May um, because of the things that have happened. Mm-hmm. I've been um, walking in these uh, racial reconciliation circles for twenty five plus years, mm. and and it's just dawned on me recently. I I don't know a thing. Yeah, about yeah. it. I, you know, I know less. Uh, now than ever, and I still have, um, uh, you know, the that's like when again when when President he has said it before, but when President Trump says I'm the least racist person in this room, and you have an African American lady who's leading the debate, and I'm thinking, no, I can't even say that because uh, I know, yeah. I know, in the secret corners of my heart, mm-hmm. you know, that there is still an issue mm-hmm. with um, with racism. Now, you know, I'm trying to surrender that to God every day and yeah. trying to do you know, what I can to work out my own salvation with fear mm-hmm. and trembling. Um, but, uh, 
but saying that, it's, it's either ignorance or arrogance. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, or, or a combination of both. Or a way of communicating. Or, I'm not going to receive yeah. a counsel. Because yeah. I'm the least rate. That's... There's yeah. nowhere to start. Well, it's, it's a way. Yeah, it's a way point. to stop. It's a conversation stopper, as you mentioned mm-hmm. we, earlier before we went on air of trying to avoid these conversation stoppers. Yeah, and really, that's what's happening now. Maybe this is the transition. I have an African American friend that we talk. We've talked about this some, and he would be one that would kind of say what you said at the very beginning. Look, that's your issue, not mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to critical race mm-hmm. theory, but I w- but the way that I'm observing what's going on now was you had this huge movement of. Um, uh, and lots of progress being made toward equality. We're mm-hmm. still nowhere near where we need to be, but you had these positive things going and as a result of the protesting and the attention this issue has gotten since, um, you know, since May. Mm-hmm. And to be quite cynical, I've been waiting to see what's going to slow it down. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is this very thing that, again, in the evangelical world anyway, slowly but surely people are rising up and condemning critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not biblical. It's Marxist. Mm. You know, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, that's a whole nother, whole nother subject. But, yeah. but they're condemning it, and and um, a couple of groups are saying, you know, you need to go to your churches, and if they're if the pastor is teaching or believing these things, then there needs to be church discipline. Oh boy, it needs to be. You know, that person needs to be. Um, disassociated from the church. And, and of course, there have been pastors who have lost their jobs for speaking out uh, on race issues. But now it's like this critical race. You can now stop this without Mm -hmm. looking like you're a racist. Now you're standing up for biblical truth. Yeah. And that biblical truth is some, I hate to say it out loud, but biblical truth is often code for white supremacy. Yeah. 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 Because now, and so now that you just raise up this, critical race theory and it's Marxism and it's destroying our country and yeah. our churches, which is now you got nationalism coming mm-hmm. into the picture. It's an intersectional situation. That's right. So now it just, it, it stops the conversation because yeah. it's McCarthyism all over again. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be called a Marxist. You don't want to be called a, a, a communist and you for sure don't want to be called a liberal, you know, mm-hmm. um, those are kind of in, in order. Marxism may be the least offensive of the right yeah, Marxism, yeah. communism, liberal, you know, kind of thing. Or the fourth one, Democrat. That's really bad. If you're yeah. called, if you're in the in the evangelical world mm-hmm. from that, and so I mean, do, does that make any sense? It or what does. do you think? I mean, it's like it's it's a way to stop it. So what you brought up, Kevin, is this you know these things. Well, now we can just. I'm feeling bad. I'm starting to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my fragility is kicking in. I, yeah. We got to stop this. Well, let's stop. Look, this critical race theory is Marxism. So it's a scapegoat. Yeah. Now we can, and of course that's privilege that you can say yep. that. Uh, but then, you know, it's, let's, let's, so that's what is stopping it. And unfortunately, throughout history, at least in our country, when there's been movement toward equality, civil rights, it's been the churches that have stopped it. Mm-hmm. You know, not the, you know, it's been the churches that have said, no, you can't go back. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. The white Jr., churches, we should say. The white yeah. churches, yeah, because Martin Luther King Jr. was a communist, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And really, in church history, you could go back to the, um, great awakenings, a time of revival, and whether or not those revivals were good or bad, the revivals were started by the church and then stopped by the church because mm-hmm. they were getting out of control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's always, and then you go farther back, how the church has stepped into science. Mm-hmm. You know, no, you can't believe the world is round, the world is flat. Yeah. You know, it was the religious groups who would um, 
torture and kill people for believing that the earth rotates around the sun instead of the sun rotating around mm-hmm. the earth. Yeah. You know, and it's, but it's always been the church that has gotten in the way of that. We and have, now we see it again. Um, if you Google Trump African Methodist Episcopal, you will get a document from January of 2017. Very beginning. <laughs> the bishops of the African Methodist Episcopal Church within weeks of inauguration were noting the demonic acts of the new Trump administration. So when I share that with people, and you can find it, a book I wrote called The Possibility of America draws from that document. Um, The witness is always there. But the ministers who are willing to point to the witness, especially in predominantly white congregation or predominantly, or authors, experts, um, people who write the books and who go to conferences about dealing with it, this this we discussed this earlier there's the question of the public record and the church in the form of the african methodist episcopal bishops council spoke clearly in a bonhoeffer kind of way in january of 2017 and as an active twitter person i have linked to that document with any number of famous people for almost four years now and i don't get a like (laughs) Or a retweet. Like, they don't want to touch it. And it's like, can you, you don't have to share it. You could just say this has some interesting points. Yeah. But I think too many people make too much money avoiding conflict um, for there to be an incentive to do that. And eventually that avoidance of conflict is a betrayal of neighbor, country, oath, baptism, all that yeah. kind of thing. And what's really important, if you want to do the history of, of, of that coming out of the AME church mm-hmm. and the history of the AME church, which is directly out of slavery. Yes. Um, you know, but the first probably primarily solely African-American denomination mm. in our country mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the founder, can't remember his name, yeah. the founder um, could not go to the Methodist church because yeah. he was African-American. Yes. And so he had to start his own so mm-hmm. you have the African American African Methodist Episcopal uh, Church. So those yeah. be though that group of bishops being the prophets, yeah, um, is significant. Yeah, I think it's it's not just any African American mm-hmm. church. It was the AME bishops that were. Yeah, and the I'm prophets. hesitant to even <clears throat> give up because of that witness, because of Reverend Barber, because of um, Lisa Sharon Harper, the word evangelical. Yeah. Lately, you hear white evangelical, and that's kind of what they have to say. But the line between white evangelical and white supremacy is very thin at at this point in time. Um, Because I want evangelical to mean good news. Bring It's a beautiful word that need not be lost to one denial cult in one country (laughs) in 2020. yeah, Go which ahead. doesn't make sense when I tell people this. When it doesn't make sense, when when the founder of our religion, our Savior Jesus, is obviously a, a person of color. Yes, obviously. Yeah. <clears throat> then, at least one of the key theologians mm-hmm. in the Western yeah. tradition of Christianity, mm-hmm. Augustine, yeah. was from North Africa. Yes. Yeah. So you have this this uh, belief that is based in um, minority people. Yeah. <clears throat> that somehow or another has been. Um, 
kidnapped yeah. and co-opted by it's been constantined in a way yeah, yeah. it's like whoa how in the, you know uh, how in the world does that happen but that's probably another <laughs> well i wanted to <laughs> another mention two or three episodes on the, the the way that you'll have a movement <clears throat> and then it'll get shut down the words politically correct were coined by um tony k bambara in a collection called the black woman and when she said 1970 when she said politically correct, she was speaking from a righteously feminist perspective and said you can't be a chauvinist and be politically correct. So it wasn't a, you're being politically correct. It was uh, politically correct is good. Mm -hmm. That would be, to be politically correct is to be correctly political, where you don't use your own power, your own leverage to do harm you're politically correct and as we've seen i can the when i try and hear the words in my head i hear donald trump saying politically correct in that sneering villainizing way but all of that is to say that um because it did start out as a a tool of discerning equality righteousness there's this sense in which bigotry improvises and takes a word like evangelical, a word like politically correct, and transmogrifies it into a whole nother operation. Um, I'm hoping that out of the critical race theory kerfuffle that there will be in time um, an awareness that this is a, um, that critical race theory is a kind of prophetic gift um, for anyone with an ear to I mean, hear. Do you think it will ever progress from just critical race theory to critical race fact, mm. like reality. Because it seems Maybe. like to people of color, it almost seems insulting that we're calling it yeah, a yeah. theory. Yeah. And they're like, no, this is this is real. Like intersectionality is real. I've been oppressed and marginalized really legitimately my entire yeah. life. And then, you know, the the white folk over here will call it a theory. And then, then beyond that, there will be a crew that call it an invalid theory on top of it yes. just being a theory. And I don't know if... It, it is the progression towards enlightenment that it stops becoming a theory and that it becomes a proven law? Well, it's tricky. I know that Twitter and Internet did not exist when I was a Rush Limbaugh aficionado. <laughs> if it had, life might look a little different for me now yeah. because there would be a public record of some militantly ignorant opinions. So I say this to say I get the fear of um, cancel culture <clears throat> coming from me. Uh, this may be a helpful word to put out on the airwaves. To love a person is to love a process. And we're all in different places at different times. Can't force feed a realization. Can't experience a realization while feeling shut down. So critical race fact is going to be a shut down <laughs> phrase it's like oh i am screwed i'm not going to yeah. be able to have access to health care or a paycheck ever again because of the errors of my past yeah. i think theory is helpful because it it invites people into a conversation it's like how about let's here's a way of thinking about it and that may be necessary for a time but hopefully there'll be a time when we can look back on what we now know segregationist academy Mm -hmm. is Franklin Road Academy a segregationist academy? Um, to love a school is to love a process. It is part of it's where it was, but ideally it's not 
what it's dealing with now any more than Vanderbilt will always be the school that kicked out the Reverend James Lawson when he led the lunch counter sit-ins, or Tennessee will always be this state that fill-in-the-blank um, executed people. Um, there's, we get to have some process in there, thinking it through, but critical race theory is, is, um, is a righteous tool of discernment in becoming more repentant and aware and transparent over the arrangements that we call an economy. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank I, you. Like I said, we could do another whole <clears throat> yeah, other episode we could. and continue we the could, conversation. We could, and we might need to come back to this at some point. Sure. Do you have a website? Um, weirdly, I have not updated what was once my website. So all <clears throat> there is now is Googling my name and finding the books okay, and the Okay, because how many books have you written? Um, I think six, and um, I'll do them real quick. Everyday Apocalypse which is about Radiohead, The Simpsons, and the Book of Revelation. Gospel I thought it was about 2020. Sorry, yeah, a good, it's good that too. <laughs> um, Gospel According to America, which has been revised, and I'll give that title in a moment. The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And that's not saying everybody needs to be religious, but that if you say that somebody else is religious and you're not, I think that's a little like saying I'm not political. I like to say that religion is perceived necessity, and um, so is politics. And then the latest is um, the possibility of America, which tries to bring some insights that I believe I had during the Bush era into the Trump era. Um, yeah, those are the possibility of America. Is All the right, latest. so go Google his name, follow him on Twitter. Please yeah. do. Well, I'll, I'll include links in the show notes to books and Twitter. Uh, Thank you. So you've Thank got you. lots of reading and homework that you can do and uh, hopefully join us in the conversation on future episodes. Uh, uh, so thank you for joining us. Any parting words, Kevin, and any upcoming episodes? Elections coming up. Yeah, yeah, we're going to try to do a bonus. Um, we'll, we'll record it, but we're going to try to do a bonus episode um, that will play either Sunday or Monday before the elections. And it's really going to use an article written by, by Dr. John Piper recently that uh, hmm. uh, had some uh, interesting things and some good things. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so we may do that episode and then you know, we'll, we'll just continue. We need to come back. I can see uh, David joining us for a number of different conversations yeah. with his expertise. I'll happily do it. Um, but anyway, so we'll, and we're getting close to Christmas, so. Hopefully 2020 is almost over. Please, please, please. All right, we'll see you on the next episode. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler podcast network. Follow the holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler.